I'd ask that you please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. A philosopher named Socrates was once brought before the Areopagus to be questioned regarding his teachings. The conclusion of that council at Mars Hill was that the philosopher must be put to death. What were his crimes? There were two charges that were made against him. First, they claimed that he was rejecting the gods that the city acknowledged. And secondly, that he was introducing new gods or new ideas that were unsanctioned by the council. So the rulers of the Areopagus determined that Socrates' beliefs were indeed a violation of their teachings and that he was, quote, corrupting the youth of the city. So what was their solution? They handed him a cup filled with hemlock, and he was to drink it and die. His result was the death penalty. 458 years later, Paul is now standing before the exact same council, rejecting the exact same gods that the city acknowledged, and introducing a religion, a god, that was not sanctioned by the council. Paul was acutely aware of the power held by this court and its historic actions against those who rejected their teachings. And I am certain that he knew that standing here at this moment and standing for Christ in this setting had the potential to be his last stand on earth. Even so, Paul preached one of the most powerful sermons ever spoken that day at Mars Hill. Last week, we studied this passage from the angle of how we as Christians should respond or live in response to a pagan culture around us, and we looked at Paul's interaction with the people of Athens, and we learned that we are to do seven things. First, we are to be culturally provoked when we see the evil that is always proliferating around us. And we are to, secondly, be countercultural in the face of inaccurate worldviews and lifestyles. And thirdly, we are to be conspicuous, making sure that we are making our faith known to those around us, that they know where we stand. Fourth, we are to be conditioned, well prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within us to anyone that might ask. Fifth, we are to be confident, knowing that we are standing on the truth of the Word. So whatever we say, we know is correct if it is in accordance with the Scripture. Sixth, we are to be comfortable with rejection, knowing that the way is narrow and few are those who find it. And finally, we are to be cross-centered, always making the good news of Jesus Christ our message, not being distracted by all the other things we might want to change about other people. Now, you'll notice that all of those things that I just mentioned are internal commitments in the heart of a believer. All of these things are decisions of the mind and convictions of the heart that will then result in transformation of life. Well, today we're going to cover the exact same text, but we're going to go back and we're going to look at this more as a case study about how to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who know nothing about him. The sermon here in Acts chapter 17 is one of the few extended sermons by Paul in the book of Acts. In fact, there are only three. It is the only one that is to a non-Jewish audience. So it is here in Acts chapter 17 that we get the strongest parallel to preaching the gospel to those in the society in which we live. So please follow along as I read once again from Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. 
Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing today over the Word. Father God, we come before You today asking for Your blessing, that You would be our vision, as we just sang, that we would see Christ clearly in the Scripture. For Lord, we know that that is what they are here to present to us. And Lord, as we see Your Son clearly, clearly in the text, I pray, Lord, that it would invigorate us, encourage us, strengthen us, equip us, prepare us so that we might point others to Christ. May we have such great confidence in Him and in Your Word and in truth that we would have a fearlessness to speak of it to others. Lord, I pray that through the training of the Word, through the equipping that we receive from the Scripture, that we might be well capable of going out and proclaiming the good news, knowing that you are the one who truly changes hearts and you are the one who brings in the harvest. So, Lord, I pray that you would send us out as workers into this community, for we know that the harvest is plentiful. We pray that the workers would not be few, that you would give many of us opportunity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Back in 2007 and 2008, I was a student at a Bible college over in Italy, and while I was there, part of my studies included traveling around the country of Italy and going to museums that contained some of the greatest art and painting and sculpting that has ever existed from some of the greatest artists and sculptors that have ever lived. People like Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci and Caravaggio and Botticelli, these are masters. Now, although I am certainly not an art connoisseur of any kind, I did learn to see the incredible detail and the skillful craftsmanship that was painstakingly created by people who really did understand how to replicate life and thought and meaning in ways that I never will. And then I moved from Italy to New York, where I wanted to continue to enjoy art and visit museums, so I visited several around the city, and to be gentle, I was extremely disappointed. Uh, One of the most well-known museums in the world at the time was showcasing as its masterpiece a canvas with a red line down the center as a brilliant work of art. Rule of thumb, if I could do it, it's not art, or at least it's not a masterpiece. And I am strongly convinced that we are living currently in an era that is not going to be highly prized by artists in the distant future. 500 years from now, art scholars are not going to look back at what we call modern art, saying to themselves, wow, those people were masters. Today I read a masterpiece for you. I read to you something brilliant. It is a display of theological genius. But what's really amazing about it is not how complex it is. It's not a masterpiece because it's something that you and I could never do. Quite the opposite. It's a masterpiece because it stands as a template of exactly what all of us are supposed to do as we go out and share the good news with others. As we have been making our way through the book of Acts, we've been asking ourselves, how do we take the gospel faithfully out of this room and into our neighborhood? How do we do that? And today we're going to see how that's done by breaking down Paul's masterpiece into seven themes that must be part of our gospel presentation. We begin with number one, God. It's a good place to start. Well, how do you start a gospel conversation? How do you begin a gospel presentation? What is the focal point? We are called to start with God Himself. Watch how Paul does this in verse 22. It says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, and so on. Now, you'll notice that he actually begins this conversation. The first words that he says are, I perceive that you people are very religious. Now, scholars are divided on how they read this. Some people read this as a compliment. Like Paul was kind of buttering them up to get their attention so that he would say something kind about them so they would then listen. Others actually view insult. It's actually used this exact way as an insulting word a couple of times in the New Testament. And so that is possible that he's saying, look, you guys are really religious, 
but you're hypocrites, you don't get it. And that's possible too. However, I don't actually think either one of those are entirely accurate. I actually think that all he is doing here, very simply, is getting them to a point where he can turn the conversation to God himself. He's just saying, well, you people seem to think you know something about God. Can I tell you about God? Let me talk to you about God. I want to give you an example of how I've seen somebody do this in a brilliant way before. My friend Peter Nicotra, he's preached for us here before. He's a pastor over in Woodhaven, Queens, and he is one of the most thoughtful and evangelistic people that I know when it comes to turning people's attention away from themselves and to God. So the first time I ever went anywhere with Peter Nicotra, we went to visit somebody in the hospital, and I was in his car. We get out, and he hadn't had breakfast yet, so he stops at a Dunkin' Donuts, and we walk in the Dunkin' Donuts on our way into the hospital, and there's a person in line behind us who's wearing a cross necklace, and he says, oh, I see you have a cross necklace. Can I tell you what that means to me? Boom, he's in. Can I talk to you about God? He doesn't even let the other person have an opportunity to respond before he's already in the door. Paul's doing the same thing. I see that you're religious people. Can I tell you about religion? Can I tell you about God? You say that you have a God that you don't know about. I can get my foot in the door right there. Let me tell you about him. And so he actually begins by just getting them to think about God. So often when we try to share the gospel, we don't get to God. We just start talking to people and we just get distracted by, well, haven't you seen how bad the world is today? And then it's all of a sudden a different conversation. No, turn the conversation as quickly as you can get it there to God himself. Paul was speaking to people who had over 30,000 official gods in their city, but he does not speak to them about God as just another one in their pantheon. He's not sitting in on their religion and just saying, hey, let me just give you another perspective. Actually, what he does here is he undermines completely everything they believe in. He doesn't even give the possibility that their gods are real. He simply begins by speaking about the true and living God. That's how we begin speaking about God. This is who God is. We covered a great deal about this last week, so I'm not going to repeat this portion a great deal today. But here's the point that I want you to see. Paul doesn't start with man. Paul starts not by highlighting our felt needs. He doesn't open up a comparative analysis of philosophy on life or how he lives versus how they live. He simply begins by explaining who God is. Now, why is this important? It's important because unbelievers do not understand who God is or know what he's like. And there are a trillion possible ways that they can get it wrong, but there's none of them who actually get it right. So what you will notice as Paul preaches this sermon is that every single thing he says and every single category that we're going to cover today moving forward is explained in the light of God. He is at the center. Paul presents him as the cosmological center around which everything else orbits. God is the cornerstone of reality and everything else that exists is contingent upon him and a relationship with him. So Paul began by setting the foundation on God himself. And everything else that we move through today is going to be a description of either God's character or works or attributes, or it will be a description of how we as humans must live in light of that God. Paul simply begins with God. So whether you're talking to somebody who claims to believe in a million gods or somebody who doesn't claim to believe that God exists at all, how do you begin? You begin by simply stating the truth. There is a God. Usually the way that I do it, I have a 
thing that I stole from Ed Moore that I just borrow. I, I use it all the time. It's a drawing that I do very poorly where I draw a circle in the top corner. This is the first thing that I usually say. There is one God that exists in three persons. I don't go much deeper than that in explaining it. There's a great deal I could say about that, but I just tell them without defense. There is one God who exists in three persons. We begin with speaking about God. Because if you begin by speaking about the nature of man or the problem of sin or the circumstances of the individual, then you're going to go down a path with no ultimate conclusion. We begin with God himself. But Paul does not just leave it at the existence of God. He then goes on to explain what God does. Point number two, the gospel includes creation. Let me cherry pick a few different quotes from this sermon, just little pieces of sentences that Paul says. Quotes like these. The God who made the world and everything in it, he says in verse 22. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, verse 25. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, verse 26. Those statements would not be well received in Athens. They would not be well received anywhere in higher education today. It would be kind of like going to a Harvard University classroom and standing up and saying, the God who made the world and everything in it. Those people in the room do not agree. The Areopagus does not agree. Nobody in that room listening to Paul held to those beliefs before that day. So why does Paul's sermon read like a summary of Genesis? Why does Paul choose to begin by describing God's work by going all the way back to the beginning of God's work, by the beginning of creation? Well, the answer is very simple. If God made you, He owns you. It's that simple. If He created you, He has authority over you. If He designed you, He can prescribe how you are to function. If He assembled your body, then He can dictate what you do with it. If He rules over the whole world that He designed, then you are responsible to obey Him. We must begin with the fact that God created. And when you share the gospel with almost anyone in the world today, it's likely that they don't agree with you. They have a mythical history of earth that begins with Charles Darwin's theory of evolution that has been adopted by almost all of academia for the past 170 years. The Big Bang, evolutionary biology, billions and billions and billions of years. Those are all myths parading around as history and as science. Yet, most people never question their theories and just hold fast to them as much as they would hold fast to the theory of gravity. Well, what do you do with somebody who believes those things? The same thing that Paul did. You just speak the truth. Simply state, God created you. And by the way, he created everything else too. The world and everything in it, including the person to whom you're sharing the gospel. We must share the good news with God as creator. Thirdly, we point them to the fact that God is transcendent. In Psalm chapter 50, verse 20, God chastised the Israelites for their misunderstanding of worship. They believed that the reason God required sacrifices was because He was hungry and He needed somebody to feed Him. And God concludes His rebuke by saying, You thought that I was altogether like you. That was their mistake. I have several books about Greek mythology that I have enjoyed. Every so often I will read one of the ancient epics or plays, and as you, you read about the Greek gods, their pantheon of deities, what stands out about them 
is just how debased and ignorant and selfish and foolish they are. It's like they found the most immature teenagers they could and just gave them a bunch of superpowers and said, let's worship those guys. Their strength and their beauty certainly were greater in their imaginations, but so were their faults. They just took people and made them bigger. This should not be surprising. This is not foreign to us. Although people in our context don't believe in Greek gods, when they imagine God, they imagine Him to be altogether like us. When people assume that they can buy God's acceptance or approval by works or through generosity or kindness or zeal or piety, they are imagining a God that requires what they have to offer. He needs me. They're doing the exact same thing that the Israelites were doing in Psalm 50 and the Athenians are doing in Acts chapter 17. They are thinking of God like a man, but God is not altogether like us. How do people try to appease God? Well, I go to church. I give to those in need. I walked an aisle as a kid. I have made up up for all my bad deeds. I paid my debt to society. Or maybe I'm an honest business person or the all-too-common I am a good person. Someone actually once said to me, it's not like I have ever killed anyone. And my response to him was, that's a pretty low bar. (laughs) Notice that all those concepts can only be said by someone who holds to a bizarre distortion of who God is. Listen to how Paul highlights the transcendent nature of God as I once again read verses 24 and 25. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord, meaning master of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and anything. Think of the simple argument that Paul is making here. This is great. He's basically saying a God that needs you to house it and feed it is not a God that's a pet. How can God be housed in a little building if He made everything that exists in the universe? Why would God need your help if He is the one that provides you with life and breath and everything else? He doesn't need you. Obviously, He does not need you because He is not like you. He is the only being in the entire universe that is not contingent upon anything or anyone else. By definition, a Creator God is omnipotent and self-sustaining. He does not need anything. Now, you don't need to know all the fancy theological terms. You'll notice Paul doesn't use any. He's talking to the top philosophers in the world, and he doesn't use any deep philosophical argumentation. He simply says, God doesn't need you. He doesn't need anyone to serve Him like you serve your gods. He simply stated that God doesn't need you, and He has existed forever and eternity past without you. This is a really important piece of the puzzle, because if God is not transcendent, then we can treat Him like one of us. Every religion in the world falsely attributes human characteristics or human needs to God that make it possible to please Him by our own devices. But God is not altogether like us, and He does not need us, and He will not accept accept us on our own terms. Why? Because God is transcendent. 
But point number four, if you have that, you have to have the opposite side of the coin. God is imminent. Not only is God far above us and far different from us, ruling the universe by the word of His power, but He is also close to us. And this is good news. One of the most common lies that unsaved people believe is that God is too far away, away to deal with us as individuals. It shows up in a million different ways. Maybe you've heard some of the following phrases. Someone will say to you, well, God doesn't seem to be concerned with my problems. Or maybe they'll say, where was God when, and then fill in the blank. God doesn't care about me. Those are all claims that deny his eminence. Or maybe they will say to you, there's no way God would ever accept me with everything that I have done. Or maybe they would say, if there is a God, I'm sure he has more important things to do than worry about my life. Or maybe they will say, I wish I could find truth, but there's so much noise out there and so many different ideas out there that I'll probably never actually really know ultimate truth. Well, these are all failures to see the imminence, the closeness of God to us. Now, let me be clear. Let me be a little bit more specific about what I'm saying here. There is a distinction between the omnipresence of God and the imminence of God. The omnipresence of God is that God is always everywhere at all times. And yes, that is true. But that's not the same thing that we're talking about in regards to the imminence of God. We're talking about the ability of humans to connect to God, that He is not far from you. The doctrine of imminence speaks to the fact that God is accessible to you. Unlike that unknown God that these Greeks worship, the true God of the universe is able to be known. That is good news. And Paul describes God this way. He says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods, and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and yet find Him. Yet, He is actually not far from each one of us. He is imminent. Earlier, we spoke about Socrates. Now, let me talk for a moment about his most famous pupil, Pluto. Oh, Pluto. Plato. Yikes. Wow. Steve, I, there's a reason I'm not a teacher. Plato. I want to share with you not his most famous philosophical work. He's, he's most known for his concept of forms. Well, I want to speak to you about one of his most theological works. He speaks a concept in his allegory called the cave. In it, Plato describes a cave with prisoners who live their entire lives in this cave. And they're in these stocks, so they can only look in one direction, into the darkness. But behind them, some of the soldiers would light a fire, and then they would make shadows that would go onto the other wall, so they could see the shadows. But they've never seen the reality of things. So all they can see is the shadow of a tree that somebody has made with their fingers or the shadow of a dog that somebody is making with their fingers. And they think, because that's all they've ever seen, that's what a dog is or that's what a tree is. Well, then one day, one of these prisoners finds a way to get out of his bonds and he sneaks away out 
toward the fire, and he sees the fire, and it burns his eyes. He's, he's like shocked at what he sees. And then the prison guards, instead of immediately taking him back, actually lead him outside, and for the first time in his life, he sees reality. He sees trees. He sees rivers. He sees all sorts of animals and birds. And then he goes back into the darkness to go tell the other people, there is something out there that's real. And when he goes in, he's so unaccustomed to the darkness that his eyes can't see where he's going. So he's groping towards the back of the room and he gets back there and he tells all of these other prisoners about it and they think that he's blind. And so they don't want anything to do with what he has to share with them. Well, Plato leaves it there. He actually stops at a very depressing place at the end of that allegory. But then what happens is scholars, philosophers, they take this up all the time, and they speak about God in those terms. But they speak about it in terms of groping your way towards the light. We're prisoners who have escaped from our bonds, but we can't figure out where to go. We're just feeling around on the cave walls trying to get towards the truth. And so all of these philosophers and scholars, they use that kind of language constantly in their writings, especially during this day, of groping towards reality, trying to just find what's true as we kind of reach around in this dark cave of reality that we all are born into. And Paul says, actually, God created it so that you can feel towards Him, but The fact of the matter is, he's not far from you. That is good news. All of these, this this concept, it's it's all throughout. You you would see it everywhere. Now that you've heard it, you should go read The Cave by Plato. It's kind of the basis of movies like The Truman Show and The Matrix. It's all over public society. But the concept of it is ultimately that truth is unattainable to the average person. And Paul says, actually, God is not far from you. When you share the gospel, you're going to be talking to people who feel as though God is far away. Truth is far away. It's unreachable by them. And we tell them exactly what Paul says. Actually, it's not far from you. No matter how far you have run away from God, all you have to do is turn and repent, and He's right there. He is right there. You don't have to go anywhere. You just turn, and He's present. You don't have to grope towards Him. He's right there in front of you. He's not far from any of us. He is imminent. The fifth thing that we point to is worship. Here's the thing. Everybody is religious. Bob Dylan was right when he said you got to serve somebody. The problem is that before knowing Christ, everyone worships a false god or many false gods. And if you boil it down, every religion other than Christianity is just a way of worshiping self. Look at how Paul goes for the throat of the religion of the Athenians in verse 29. He says, "...being then God's offspring..." We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Well, what are all of the gods, the 30,000 Athenian gods? It's that. That's what they believed in. That's what they bowed down to. That's what they gave their money toward. That's what they worshipped. Well, most likely you're not going to be talking to people that are worshipping statues. You're not going to be telling them, hey, bowing down to that little image is absurd. But you certainly will be speaking to people that worship money or sex or comfort or acceptance. You may be speaking to people that worship Mary or Allah or a political party. You don't have to spend a ton of time dismantling their faith. You can simply follow Paul's example and point out that since it is God who made you, He is the only one who actually deserves your worship. Think about it again. He says, being God's offspring, being that you are from Him, 
then we ought not to think of him in these ways. Worship begins in the mind. And worship begins by thinking correctly about God. We teach people, we preach the gospel by saying, you must understand that God alone is worthy of your worship. Which leads us to point number six, what happens when they don't? Modern American Christianity has attempted to eliminate the sharp edges from their teaching and preaching, and churches often tiptoe around the concept of hell and eternal conscious punishment because they know that this idea makes people squirm. Here's a quote from a ministry that promotes this kind of style. They say, We must provide a space for unsaved people to encounter the gospel in non-offensive terms that are relatable and non-confrontational. Well, this is not just a problem at the church level. This is actually more of a problem at the personal evangelistic level. And this is perhaps the most difficult thing that I will say today. When you are sharing the gospel with individuals, it includes that we are to tell them that there is judgment for those who refuse to bow the knee to Jesus. Paul made that very clear when he told the Athenians that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Now, I'm not telling you to go out there and be all fire and brimstone with everybody that you know, but the gospel does include the promise of eternal judgment for those who reject it. And when I was once speaking with a family member who is unsaved, uh, I was asked why I always wanted to talk about this stuff. Like, this person was tired of hearing it. Why do you always want to talk to me about this? My response was, because I really believe in God and because I really believe in heaven and hell. And I truly believe that the only way for you to attain heaven and to escape hell is to trust in Jesus. That person had no idea how to respond. Initially, it was received with shock. I'm still praying that that person comes to faith. It has not yet to this point. But I didn't throw that out there to be pushy or manipulative. I wasn't throwing that out there as a scare tactic. I wasn't trying to manipulate or sell fire insurance. I was simply saying as part of my motivation when I was asked, why do you care so much? I care because I want you to be in heaven. These things boil down to the fact that I do indeed believe in hell. However, fear of hell is ultimately never supposed to be the driving force of our preaching the gospel. The, the goal is preaching the gospel so that Christ receives the bride for whom he died. It's also never the ultimate reason why people turn to Christ. Now, people do get fearful of hell, but ultimately, the fear of hell is never what actually causes somebody's heart to turn and accept Jesus, which leads us to our final point. What must be included in our gospel proclamation is relationship. Paul began by speaking about an unknown God. Look, there's this statue out there, there's this altar that you guys have created to a God that you don't know. And throughout his entire sermon, he has highlighted the helplessness of their idols, that they would have to carve them themselves. Like, you worship that thing, you made that thing. That's strange. And you have to feed that thing. That's strange. And he drew an intentional parallel to Plato's concept of wandering through the darkness and striving toward truth. And the unspoken and common perception of all of the members of the Areopagus would have been that it was impossible to actually have a relationship with God. Sure, you can do things for God. You can kind of convince them to be on your side, but you can't actually love them in the way and have them reciprocate. But the good news of the gospel is that God is not far from us. Paul also quotes here from a couple of their own poets, one of whom was from Paul's own region of Cilicia, which is where Tarsus is located in Anatolia. 
Paul points out that their poets were correct. He said, actually, you guys already know this. You believe this. You've heard this many times, and you accept this. He says, it's your own poets that said, in him we live and move and have our being, and we are indeed his offspring. Paul is claiming that these things are true of all people, saved and unsaved. And he is arguing that the Greek poets were correct when they claimed that our entire existence is already sustained at every moment by God alone. That means that God already has some kind of relationship with every one of us. We are not moral free agents. See, the the Greeks, the way they understood it was like, well, okay, I go every once in a while into this building where the God is, and while I'm in there, the God has an awareness and a perception of me, and if I can do the things that that God appreciates, then that God will show favor to me that can follow me out into the real world. But they really don't care what I'm doing as long as I'm not in that room. They don't really care at all. And, and they're regional deities. That's one of the reasons why warfare was so strange. Like the Romans, when they tried to invade Britain, were so fearful because they didn't think their gods would travel with them across the, the British Channel. They didn't... They didn't think that they would come with them. So they were so afraid to go and fight those guys up in the British Isles until finally Julius Caesar led them up there with the first landing craft. It's a whole other story. The point being, they did not understand their religion to be a religion where God actually has an ongoing, sustaining relationship with you. But he said, look, your own poets acknowledge that every single breath you take is given to you by God. And every movement that you make with your body is something God has permitted and allowed and sustained you to do. And everything you have is given from him because he made you. So we are not some kind of an island. We are not just exclusively some brotherhood of man. We are, from the time of our conception, a product of and a dependent person upon God himself. However, Paul has made it clear in his sermon that the relationship that we have with God will result in judgment unless... There is a change. Like, we all do have a relationship with God, but it's one that is a broken relationship. So here we come to the one and only thing that Paul tells the Athenians to do. However, once again, you're going to notice that Paul grounds it in a command that originates from God himself. He says in verse 30, God commands. So you want to know what God wants? What does God desire from you? It's not a bunch of sacrifices on an altar not a bunch of pagan worship. He wants you. He wants you to repent. In other words, he wants your heart to change. Now, we proclaim to everyone that a relationship with God is possible because of the death of Christ on behalf of sinners. It is possible because Jesus paid the debt for his people. It is possible because he has risen and he lives today to rule, but nobody will ever have a right relationship with Jesus apart from repentance. Repentance simply means turning away from everything that you had been living for and turning to Christ. That is the message that we proclaim. That must be part of our message. And repentance results in that immediate and everlasting relationship with God. For it is to them that we have been able to be called children of God. So when we're sharing the gospel with those in our community, let's review. What do we do? We tell them that God exists. And we tell them that God is their creator. And we tell them that God is transcendent, perfect, holy, unlike us. We tell them that God is imminent, near, accessible, available. That Jesus came to be God with us and the Spirit is God within us. And that he came so that anyone who was far off could come to him by simply turning to him in faith. And we tell them that God is worthy of worship and nothing else is. 
We tell them that God is just and that Jesus will judge the world by a standard of his own righteousness. And we tell them that God is a God of relationship. Because of the cross, all who repent have been given the right to be called children of God. And we do this knowing that just like Paul, we will on occasion have the blessed opportunity of seeing a new Christian come into the kingdom of God by trusting in Christ for salvation. So, brothers and sisters, I hope this helps you and equips you as we now go out there and we teach and we preach the good news to everyone that we can. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we do thank you for everything that we have seen today in the Scripture. We thank you, Lord, that you exist. And we thank you, Lord, that you have created us and that you are far above us, that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. We thank you, Lord, that you are near and that you have received us, everyone in this room who has been saved, that we have been welcomed into your arms. And Lord, I thank you that if there is anyone in the room who does not know you, that they could turn and repent today and be saved. We thank you, Lord, that you are worthy of worship, that you are a good God, a perfect God, a holy God. We pray, Lord, that we would be committed to never worshiping anything lesser. Lord, we thank you that you are a just judge and that your standards are not arbitrary, but they are based upon the righteousness that you contain. And Lord, we do thank you that we have relationship with you, that you are not unknown to us, but that you have made yourself known and that you have drawn near, and that you have made yourself our friend and our father, and and that Jesus has become our brother. We thank you, Father, for that. We do all of these things that we do now as we proclaim the gospel, because we desire for more people to have that relationship with you. It's in Jesus' precious and holy name that we pray. Amen.